Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies, old and new. It is me, Dr. Maria Norris, and welcome back to Enemies of the People. In fact, welcome to season three of Enemies of the People. Our last season ended a bit abruptly. Suffice to say, the things were chaotic at my end. Enemies of the People, as you know, is a one-woman operation. So when I was ill and bedridden with COVID or dealing with a family emergency, there was no one to record or edit or produce the show. But thankfully, things are a bit better now and I am so happy to be back working on this podcast and I am so excited to share this next season with all of you. Thank you so much for your kind words of support and thank you especially for listening and always being here supporting the show, even when we're on hiatus. It really, really means the world to me. So before we start our show today, I have a little story to tell you. Back in the day when I was still a student, I remember very clearly one day when I was on my way to the library and a friend stopped me to say, hey, did you hear about the Nottingham student that was arrested for terrorism because he downloaded one of the readings that's actually in our reading list? That was in 2008 and that student is none other than Dr. Rizwan Sabir, our guest on the podcast today. Rizwan is now a lecturer of criminology at Liverpool John Moores University and he has written of his experience being wrongfully detained on terrorism charges in his absolutely brilliant book, The Suspect, Counterterrorism, Islam and the Security State. Rizwan and I had a lot to talk about, not only about his incredible book, but also about the state of UK counterterrorism and the many myriads of ways that state violence can directly impact you. So now, without further ado, here's Rizwan. I am Dr. Rizwan Sabir. I'm a lecturer in criminology at Liverpool John Moore University's School of Justice Studies. And my area of specialism is counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and armed Muslim groups. We did our PhD and master's program at the same time, though we didn't know each other at the time, because I was doing my master's in 2008. And I was studying international relations and politics, and I had a uh, module that was on international terrorism. And I was looking at the reading list for that module, and I was going to the library with a friend when she turned to me and said, did you know there is a person at Nottingham University that was arrested for terrorism for downloading the Al-Qaeda manual, the same one that we have on our reading list? And that was you. Yes, it was me. And the the document that I downloaded was on, of course, your reading list, but it was uh, also available publicly from the library, the US Department of Justice website, which is, of course, where I accessed it from, but could also be purchased and still is available to purchase from high street bookshops. So it was a very open and freely available document. And it just shows you as well the, the smallness of the world, so to speak, that What was just a name and an event for you back in 2008 is something that now you're speaking to in person on this podcast. So it's a small world, they say. I'll ask you to explain to everyone briefly what happened and how you detail it in your book. But just to start off, something I found really fascinating at the time, and I still do, is that the the document is known as the Al-Qaeda manual. But it's not an Al-Qaeda manual. It's not even really about Al-Qaeda. It's just the name that was given to it. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. So the document was actually discovered in the United Kingdom in the city of Manchester in the year 2000 in possession of a Libyan man. And it was actually put forward in the prosecution of a separate case, the East Africa embassy bombings that took place in 1998 by Al-Qaeda. When the prosecution of those individuals was taking place in New York, this document was actually submitted as evidence. But the document's original name was never the Al-Qaeda training manual. It was actually, quote, military studies in the jihad against the tyrants and was a collection of information that had been compiled from law enforcement manuals and other kind of uh, counter-subversion manuals and compiled into this document and then given the title of the Al-Qaeda training manual by the US Department of Justice in order to essentially convince the jury that this was a document that was a lot more dangerous than it actually seemed. But in reality, that name was, that title of the document was given by the US government and then of course placed uh, onto its US DOJ Department of Justice website. For people like myself and yourself, researchers, journalists, academics, librarians to access for their primary research, but of course, also at the same time to be used to investigate uh, and arrest and detain and, and interrogate people for being in possession of it. So the, the document has a really interesting history and context, which oftentimes goes unnoticed unless and until you look into what the actual document is and we know that it's most certainly not the Al-Qaeda training manual, though, of course, that's what it's known as. It's interesting because for me, that just brings to mind the question of who is allowed to read what and who is allowed to research what. There was a, an anecdote at the beginning of your book about when the counterterrorism officers are first around the University of Nottingham and you, they come to speak to you and you said that you were speaking earlier with a friend, a colleague from your course, and you point them out to the police officers and he's a white guy and they're like not interested in any way. And, uh, and how a lot of people that I was doing a master's with were not concerned about possessing these documents. So there is something here about who is allowed to research what, right? And who is free to research what? Yeah, I think that's actually a really excellent point, because oftentimes we assume that as academics, there's a level playing field when it comes to the study of political violence and armed groups and terrorism in scare quotes. And what this case uh, actually shows quite clearly is that there is no equality and that people, depending on their political identity, their immigration status, their, their, their sense of religiosity, will be viewed in different ways and treated differently. And of course, that ties into uh, notions of privilege and who the state inherently suspects uh, to be using this kind of area and domain as a, a smokescreen, as the police officer said to me, in order to conceal what their real objective is. So throughout the entire process of being arrested, detained and interrogated, what seemed very, very clear to me from the onset was the degree of doubt and suspicion around my motivations for researching this particular topic, politics. And the police officers could just not fathom, it seemed, how a young Muslim student who was politically conscious and active at the time could be researching terrorism through this so-called objective framework that non-Muslim, non-racialized white scholars are generally associated to look at this subject through. So that was one of the inherent things that became really visible to me 
was the levels of suspicion and doubt and skepticism around my motivations for researching this topic. And also it shows the fact that the way I was treated and arrested and interrogated and surveilled, etc., that actually this isn't a level playing field and that there is a sliding scale of suspicion depending on your kind of varied identities and, and sense of politics as well. Mm-hmm. So that's actually a really interesting and, and kind of very direct experience or learning that emerged from the entire thing was this isn't a level playing field and there will be suspicion and doubt depending on who you are. Yeah, and it's also about who's allowed to be the expert, right? I mean, which is still something that we see in our field of terrorism studies. It's still very much white-dominated, white male-dominated, very much Western-dominated. And uh, and also something that struck me again from your book, and we'll talk more about your book, is that the people who the police were asking for information, you know, to to as the experts on the field to explain why is it that you were studying this and why it was legitimate for you to study this, or in the case of the police, why it was illegitimate for you to have this document. They were white. They were the experts. They were the ones that had to vouch for you, essentially, and give you the the credibility to be the one to be studying these things. And I think that's something that if you're not in academia, and if you're not in academia as a marginalized person, then you don't understand how much in academia there is this deeply racialized and prejudiced view of what the expert is in the field. And the expert in academia remains a white man. Yeah, and there's two kind of thoughts that come to mind immediately based on what you've just said. And the first one is that actually the people that the police relied upon for their statements, the professor of romance uh, literature, I think it was, wasn't even actually a specialist on the subject of political violence and counterterrorism. So that's the first thing. They went to him because he was quite senior in the university's hierarchy and was an academic. So automatically they assume that because you're kind of high up pecking order, so to speak, of the academic hierarchy, that automatically and innately makes you suitable to comment on the possession of this document, for which you have absolutely no expertise or professional credentials to comment upon. It was literally, you're senior in the hierarchy, thus can you give us a statement? Mm -hmm. But also because he was saying the sorts of things that would legitimise the police had done and were continuing to do. You know, he was saying that the document is illegal for academic research by a student, thus that justifies the police's case. So that's the first thought that comes to mind based on what you said. The second one is, interestingly, is I've put this book together, which draws upon, you know, a mix of lived personal experience with academic research. But this book will probably never be accepted as being a legitimate form of scholarship by uh, mainstream terrorism studies. And the reason is because they will always view it as being biased, as being too uh, subjective based upon lived experience, and this can't be applied uh, more broadly. Whereas for me, this book is actually a kind of rupture in my academic career. I have to acknowledge the existence of this experience and how this impacts and influences my academic research, the sorts of research questions that I ask in my my work, who I speak to, and why I have the sorts of ideas and where they come from. So for me, it's a more honest, a more accountable, self-accountable form of scholarship, which provides, in my view, the reader with a more kind of informed understanding of who I am and what my scholarship is about. Whereas those who claim to hold on to notions of objectivity are somehow erasing 
their own politics and their own centrism when it comes down to the study of such groups and kind of erasing and sidelining their own identity generally belonging to a dominant group, white male, and how that influences and impacts their own research and scholarship. So the police kind of internalize that idea that if you are a white uh, male looking at these sorts of subjects, then you are somehow safe. But anybody who doesn't comply with that identity is inherently suspicious or not really an expert, and this requires further investigation and interrogation. So you can see how those kind of uh, commonsensical notions have been internalized by state security agencies and how they essentially lead to the criminalization of completely ordinary people, innocent people who are trying to go about to produce academic scholarship on a, a topic of political interest and controversy. So it's not just an empty, meaningless kind of internalization. It's actually one that carries significant uh, harm and trauma and damage for racialized scholars, especially, but also those who are dissenting from, you know, neoliberal capitalist kind of economic and political organization of society. So anyone involved in dissent, essentially, but especially racialized communities. And it beautifully mirrors the construction of the other the racialized other as the the impure, the possible criminal, the suspect, the name of the book, the suspect, while the white person is not, it's not political. The white person, the white existence is not political, whilst the racialized existence is inherently political because of everything. So it's striking to me that your story and the way that you write it in the suspect, the fact that you inserted yourself in the book, because the book is about your experience and you make your experience rather than an anecdote that you put at the beginning of the book. The book is about UK cat terrorism and you, because it happened to you, you were at the center of it. And the word that you said about this being a rupture is also, I think, a monumental type of disruption that is much needed in terrorism studies because the field desperately needs more honesty about how we are all engaged in counterterrorism, in terrorism meaning making. I mean, come on, you know, as, a, as an academic and as a teacher that we have to report our students to the home office. Yeah. We know about the prevent duty in schools and there is no pretending that there is objectivity in this. And the pretension of impartiality, that is white supremacy at work. And you're raising the experiences of those who have been traumatized by the state or have experienced state violence while prioritizing the experience of those that are not touched by state violence because of their own privilege. Right, right. And, and I think, you know, it's funny you talk about this notion of objectivity in the book kind of centering my lived experience, because when I had kind of succumbed to the pressure of, I'm not going to go so far as to say positivist social science, but I certainly succumbed to a pressure when I proposed the book to my publisher, Pluto Press, to say, look, I'm going to mention my experience, but it's only going to be very briefly in order to kind of set the book up and the tone that I'm going to take in it, which is going to be an academic tone. But I'm, I need to declare what my interest and what my role is. And then when I started actually writing the book, funnily enough, the personal side of the kind of lived experience of state violence, interrogation, surveillance, stop and search, and so on and so forth, that kind of flowed so naturally. And then when I started writing about counterinsurgency and trying to broaden out uh, discussion around the prevent strategy and preemptive policing and criminalization, it just became such a mundane, tiring, kind of cumbersome task that really felt like I was going away from 
what essentially was a really important story that needed to be told in this centralized way. And I started to feel really restricted and really confined in the way I could express myself. And then I kind of stopped and I thought, hang on a second, I'm trying to tell a story here of counterterrorism, how it functions and what the effects of it are and where the inspiration comes from. Why on earth am I not centering my own experience? Why on earth am I not centering my own story? which kind of tells all the particular tales, so to speak, about counterterrorism and the impact it has and what happens during the course of you know, bureaucratized violence that takes place. So I decided to start centering my own experience. And before I knew it, it turned into space to just express myself in an honest and candid way in order to hopefully empower and educate uh, readers about what counterterrorism is. Though, of course, we can talk about this shortly, but that carried its own kind of costs and damages. But eventually it became a way of just saying, look, I'm not going to hide away from this lived experience or just mention it in the actual introduction. But I'm actually going to center it so the reader understands the lived reality of counterterrorism and how counterterrorism functions. But most importantly of all, the way it affects and impacts not only the research and scholarship that we do, but also the human, the emotion, the, the, the kind of way that we process our lived reality on a daily basis. So in that respect, it became a kind of an outlet to express myself and also to use that personal story to help explain what the broader field of counterterrorism was in order to raise questions around how we tell uh, stories and how we generate knowledge on this particular subject area, which is, you know, of course, riddled with positivist notions around trying to be objective and trying to remain impartial. And as Desmond Tutu's famous comment says, that if you choose to be neutral in situations of injustice, then you've chosen the side of the oppressor. And that's essentially what happens within this distinct field, that those who claim to be objective allow white supremacy to continue to reign without any kind of resistance or challenge. But a lot of the time, terrorism studies, orthodox terrorism studies, actually becomes complicit in the way that counterterrorism policy is created and justified. So I think in that respect, it was a corrective to kind of center the personal story and to help kind of disrupt, like you said, counterterrorism knowledge and, and the sort of ideas that are claimed to be respect in, in sharing stories of that particular policy area. Would you say that um, an academic memoir is a good way to describe your book? Yeah, I, I mean, partially, yeah. I, I think you can't take the academia out of me because I am trained as a social scientist, no matter how much I, I may hate myself for that. <laughs> uh, but I, I think there, there is an element of, you know, Foucault, there's Gramsci in this book, there's a little bit of a gambling. So there is theoretical kind of ideas that inform this book. But I did try my best to kind of not emphasize or not overplay the, the academic, social, scientific side. But yeah, academic memoir, you could say. But I, I prefer just largely a memoir with a touch of academia. I like that. The memoir with a dash of academia. <laughs> so happy to announce that our Frenemies Book Club is now back. And it should come as no surprise that our main book club book is none other than The Suspect, Counterterrorism, Islam and the Security State by Rizwan Sabir. 
I will be giving away two copies of the book and to enter the giveaway, all you have to do is support the show over at Ko-fi or share a screenshot of your review of the show with us on our Twitter. The link for our Ko-fi is in our bio. And as you can tell, Enemies of the People has no advertising or sponsors. All the costs of the show are covered by myself and the incredible donations of our listeners. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me continue to do this. You can always donate as a one-off donation over a coffee or join as a monthly supporter. As a monthly supporter, you also get access to our live book club Zoom meeting so we can all get together and talk to each other. It's one of the highlights of my months and I always look forward to it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me to continue to do this show. And now, back to the show. It took me completely by surprise because I have followed your work and your scholarship for many years. And when you told me you were writing a book, I expected what your proposal was, you know, that you would use your personal experience as the anecdote at the beginning, and then you would carry on and be a more academic book. So I was not expecting the book to be what it essentially was, a deeply personal, incredibly gripping and thrilling. I was anxious reading it. I was um, deeply, deeply gripped. And I was thinking somebody needs to option this. It needs to be a movie. I want to see it. I want to see it now. And I wanted you to tell our listeners then, in a nutshell, if you can, what is The Suspect about? So The Suspect is essentially my lived experiences of being arrested, detained, interrogated and released without charge on suspicion of terrorism. And an explanation around how, even though I was released, the state surveillance infrastructure was still showing an interest in me. The roadside points of entry and exit of the border or border crossings, how this interest remained and kind of loomed over me, this suspicion did for many, many years. How I kind of fought through a legal case in order to clear my name, but the really damaging kind of long-term psychiatric impact and effect of those particular policies. And then kind of the purpose of the book at the same time is to say, look, we can't just look at this as an individual anecdote or case study, but actually let's place this within the broader framework of what's been happening over the last 20 years of the so-called war on terror. And to kind of frame what's happening here domestically in the United Kingdom and parts of Europe and North America and beyond as being part of this kind of global war on essentially Muslimness inherently, but also dissent more broadly that seeks to challenge the hegemony of uh, Western and especially American nation states. So it becomes a way of kind of explaining that, look, what's happening at a very local level has a profound connection to a broader global policy that's kind of expressing itself in different ways, depending on where that policy is being exercised. So it might be drone strikes in Yemen or Somalia or northwest uh, Pakistan, or it might be um, counter-ideology prevent CVE policy in Europe, or it might be an arrest and detention and surveillance in a, a local area like Blackburn or Nottingham or London or Manchester or you know, Minnesota, wherever it may be. So all these policies may seem like they are disjointed, but actually when we view them as part of this global campaign against our Muslim groups and its supporting base over the last 20 years, we can actually start to make sense of those random acts of state violence that take place on a local level 
to be part of this global framework. So that's what the book is. It's an attempt to connect the very personal to the local, all the way to the national, and then, of course, to the global, in order to help the reader understand how the policy expresses itself globally. What would you have to say if somebody was reading your book and they are like, oh, my God, that is horrible that this happened to you. That is horrendous. But it's not like this. You're the exception. You know, you just it was an exceptional case. I'm sure the cat's terrorism picks up more people that are guilty than they're innocent. Actually, this is a really excellent question. I'm really glad you have actually asked it because and I mentioned this in the book to say, look, this is one story amongst 2,418 arrests that have taken place from 9-11 until 2021 March. It's one story that kind of tells the story of what happens when an innocent person is arrested and detained, interrogated and surveilled, and the, the trauma and harm that they live and experience as a result of it. But actually, this is not an exception. The only exceptional thing about this particular book is the fact that it tells a story a story that thousands of other young Muslim men predominantly have gone through and lived through, but are not able to tell the story for a whole reason of sociopolitical and economic reasons. So, for example, yeah, my privilege was deeply questioned when I was arrested and detained and taken into custody. But as an academic, I still have the tools and the privilege and the social networks and the cultural capital, you know, access to journalists and lawyers and publishers and people like yourself who will help me get my voice out there. And a lot of people who are targeted by the security state are some of the most vulnerable uh, members of our communities that are targeted. They don't have a formal education. They don't have access to networks and contacts like journalists and lawyers and podcasters and so on and so forth. Oftentimes they are foreign nationals who don't have citizenship. So they are immediately vulnerable to being deported or extradited and so forth. And this is who the state generally targets with its security and counterterrorism policies. So those people generally don't have the tools to tell the story that I am telling in this particular book. It's not because it's not happening. It's because the state targets the most vulnerable. In my case, I had those tools so I could tell the story with great difficulty as a caveat, but I could tell it nevertheless. So I would say it's not that these things are my story is an exception. On the contrary, it's actually the rule. What's exceptional is the fact that I'm sharing the story. And there are other instances of stories being shared, whether it's through art, whether it's through music, about resistance, for example, people who have experienced the prevent policy because their child has been interrogated without their parents in a school, talking to the national media. So there are some stories, but and I want to re-emphasize it here. This book is not exceptional. This is this is the rule. It's not an exception to the rule. It is the rule. The only exceptional thing is it's being told. And I think you do a great job of doing that, especially when you talk so explicitly and openly about how the apparatus of state security is an act of violence and it does lead to trauma. And it's not something that is very openly talked about, the, the concept of state violence in itself. You know, there is a very narrow understanding in the public about what violence is, especially state violence, and how that violence can directly link to trauma. And you do such a good job of saying that really openly and bravely in your book. You don't shy away from talking about the difficulties, as you said, of telling your story. Absolutely. And I think in, in that particular respect, it was to also highlight to the reader that, look, violence doesn't always have to lead to a bloody nose. 
because I've, I've had this said to me before, but that's too restrictive an understanding of violence. You know, even the United Nations in their definition of torture incorporate psychological torture as a form of violence. So there is precedent all the way in international law, all the way to local policy, that violence doesn't always have to be physically articulating itself against the, the, the victim, but it can also be invisible. And a lot of the system of governmentality that we live in in the United Kingdom and Europe and the developed world, this is how power is exercised and operates. It operates invisibly. It gaslights you constantly. And it seeks to basically control you through a series of uh, commands and threats. And a lot of the time, those commands and threats, if they're sustained or based on a very real fear of state violence coming, knocking on your door, in a physical format, will have a profoundly damaging and detrimental effect on your mental health. It's like women, for example, who experience uh, sexual or domestic violence are not constantly being beaten up by their partners, but they are being shouted at and gaslighted and questioned and suspected and so on and so forth. And all of those things eventually accumulate. And it's, it's as the saying goes, death by a thousand slashes. And that's what essentially causes the breakdown. It causes and reinforces the trauma and that sense of isolation. So all of these particular forms of state policy operate in the same way that any form of abusive relationship works. It relies upon gaslighting and invisible power. And the, the whole purpose of writing that into the book was not only to explain how that kind of form of coercion and violence works, but it's also to empower the reader to say, look, if we don't talk about these issues and we kind of brush them under the carpet because we're afraid of expressing some of our vulnerabilities, then how are we ever going to address the effects of two decades worth of highly militarized security and counterterrorism policy and practice? We have to start sharing our vulnerabilities in order to explain and express how violence impacts us and how it functions in order to stop that violence from happening and being so normalized. Your book really is, and your story, an answer to the question, you know, what people, the truism that people say, if you have nothing to worry about, then you don't have to worry about it. If you haven't done anything wrong, then why do you worry about counterterrorism? And your book is like this. This is why you worry about it. I mean, uh, to those people who say, if you've got nothing to um, hide, then you've got nothing to fear. I always say, why don't you always leave your curtains open then? So everybody can see you showering and getting dressed and all the rest of it. You know, the, the whole idea is, is, is disingenuous. That if you've got nothing to be afraid of, then you, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to be afraid of. Well, on that basis, then we should just investigate every middle-aged white male for being a potential paedophile because that's what the demographic and the profile shows us, right? So there's this whole, there are constantly these kind of fallacies and, and ideas that are put forward that somehow justify and legitimize what the security state does. And actually the book is a way of kind of correcting that to say, look, even though we've got, we, we've done nothing wrong, that doesn't stop the state from still intruding into our lives and collecting all this really deeply personal data about who we're talking to, how often we're talking to them, all that metadata that GCHQ and its relevant agencies are collecting, they, they want that in order to help them develop profiles so people can be socially controlled when a crisis arises. So it, it becomes a way of developing the ability 
to exercise control over a population, not at that particular moment in time, but God forbid, if a particular community becomes an issue in the future, for example, young white women become, for example, a target of the state, they've got all this data that they can tap into in order to essentially deal with that particular community at any given moment in time. And that's essentially what the state is constantly doing with its drive to collect all this information and data and surveillance. It's preparing to deal with crises and communities that are engaged in resistance, if not now, then in the future. And that has a deeply damaging effect, just to kind of bring it home, that has a deeply damaging effect on, on the victims and the individuals who understand how this form of power works. You know, knowledge is power, Foucault famously said. It's because once we understand something and how it functions, it has an ability to, to overpower us. But I think then that's where Gramsci becomes really relevant because he teaches us how to resist uh, when power is completely overwhelming us in, in the way we behave and think. So there is resistance and there is an ability to resist. And speaking of resistance... We talk about different ways that we can resist the security state, but what about reforming the security state? Is reform possible or is abolition the answer? The reason I ask is because I constantly get told, you know, you complain all the time about national security and how horrible it is, but what can we do? I mean, no one's saying that somehow we don't need to stop people blowing themselves up. No one's saying that, and anybody who is implying that is talking rubbish. What we're essentially saying is that a lot of the policies and laws that have been created, especially over the last 20 years, are not targeting violence. So, for, for example, there's so many laws that I could use here to explain this point. But just take the one example that I was arrested for. I was being considered for charges under Section 58 of the Terrorism Act 2000, which is an offence which essentially criminalises the possession or collection of information that is useful to a terrorist. It doesn't matter what your reason for possessing that information is. So you could be a librarian, an academic, a lawyer, a journalist, a researcher. You could be the prime minister. If you are in possession of info that is deemed to be useful to terrorists, you are committing a crime. So it's the nature of the information, not what you intend to do with it. That within itself is a profoundly draconian power that criminalizes completely innocent people or has the potential to. The same way, there are so many other laws encouraging terrorism. If you encourage terrorism, whether it took place in the past, in the present, or you, you, you can be prosecuted irrespective of whether anybody is even actually incited or encouraged to commit terrorism. So if you're reckless, for example, in the way you give your statements. So what we're saying is that these laws have been created to not deal with people engaged in actual violence or plots or conspiracy, as it's traditionally called, but a way of allowing the state to take preemptive action against people who they deem to be a future threat. And I'm not in the business of Minority Report, as much as I may like Tom Cruise, to deal with and arrest and detain people and punish them based on what they may do in the future. So my answer to this is we've had years and years and decades uh, and hundreds of years worth of legislation and law enacted to deal with people who are involved in criminal conspiracies and acts of violence, we need to use that legal infrastructure to deal with people engaged in violence or planning it, rather than this new paradigm, this new legal architecture and policy architecture that seeks to deal, criminalize ideas, to criminalize 
ideology that doesn't comply with neoliberal Eurocentric supremacy, and people who are dissenting against the way society is organized economically based on a capitalist uh, model. So dismantle the new laws that criminalize preemptively all of these different groups. And let's go back to using the laws that we've used for hundreds of years to deal with criminal conspiracy and acts of violence. That is more sufficient. So yes, an abolitionist uh, movement that seeks to dismantle the institutions and policies that are leading to this form of preemptive criminalization. You cannot reform this system. It is inherently racist, inherently misogynistic, inherently Islamophobic. There is no reform to this system. You have to rebuild it based upon an emancipatory form of ideas rather than this notion of white supremacy that is deeply ingrained within the institutions, especially the security state, which of course gets its training from the policing of colonized people in the in the colonies throughout history. So yeah, let's let's abolish this, let's dismantle it and recreate it. You cannot reform this. And also it doesn't work because we are not any safer yeah. now than we were before these laws were enacted. In many ways, we were less safe. We're creating more problems than we are solving. So not only is it in all the things that you said, inherently racist, Islamophobic, and is a deeply white supremacist security apparatus, it also doesn't work. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do, which is to keep us safe. It doesn't. I actually, you know what, in looking at it through a kind of macro lens just there, I completely forgot that point. But actually, this doesn't even work. And one thing that my experiences have told me is the more the state comes knocking on your door and exercises violence and coercion against you, the more kind of angrier or so to speak, radicalized you become. And I'm just thinking about the amount of people that are constantly coercively policed, whether it's a stop and search, whether it's a border detention, whether it's an arrest, whether it's being sent to prison for something that you've not done, or an act form of uh, a detention or uh, imprisonment for a crime that your counterparts, like your white counterparts, are not being subjected to, right? It leads to this sense of rage and anger. So if the policy is trying to so-called de-radicalize people, actually, it's not doing that at all. On the contrary, it's having the completely opposite effect, which then begs the question, how much of this policy is actually about de-radicalization? Because the government can't be that stupid. The agencies, well, the government can certainly, but the agencies can't be that incompetent that they cannot see that their policies are having this really divisive counterproductive effect. And that raises a question, or do they want it to continue to happen in order to justify their own existence? You know, counterterrorism industry is an industry. If you stop, if you implement a progressive policy or dismantle yourself, there's not going to be an industry left. So it becomes in the self-interest of, you know, the prevent lobby and the security apparatus to sustain that degree of threat and risk by creating monsters, by, by basically radicalizing people through policy and practice themselves. How much of that is an accident or is it even an accident? Question mark policies function as they were designed to function. So if it's functioning this way, it's because it was designed to do this. There is, it's serving a purpose. And the fact that it's remained so successful in the eyes of the government and in the eyes of those that promote it so much is really goes to show exactly your point, that it is propping up an industry that is built up and um, that relies on state violence in order to continue. 
But absolutely. And I, and I think the stuff on counterinsurgency that I mentioned in this book in order to kind of bring everything together is also a way of making that same argument that actually it's the targeting of innocent people, members of the Muslim community who are going about their daily lives is not an accident. It's actually by design. The design is to kind of win over and co-opt uh, or secure the acquiescence of this particular community in order to side with you because they're all considered to be potential terrorists and insert or recruits to a global Islamic insurgency. Therefore, you need to win them over. You need to monitor them at the same time because they're risks and threats and dangers. So, yeah, the policy is actually designed, like you say, institutionally to, to operate according to this way, which is kind of frightening as well, because it just shows that if, if these policies are designed to exist in this way and operate in this way, then our task of resisting them and dismantling them becomes even more difficult and challenging because, you know, the, 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 there's so much at stake for these agencies in, in prolonging and sustaining these areas of policy and practice. Thank you so much, Rizwan. I am so grateful that you took the time to come to speak to me and also that you wrote this book. I am immensely grateful for you, for having written what you've written, for the courage that you had to write the way that you did and for coming here to talk to us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor and I hope your listeners enjoy uh, listening to the podcast and keep up the great work as well. Thank you. That was Dr. Rizwan Sabir. You can find him on Twitter at Rizwan Sabir. His book, The Suspect, Counterterrorism, Islam, and the Security State, is available now. The Suspect is also our May Frenemies Book Club book. Now we'll be giving away two copies of the book. To enter the giveaway, just support the show over a coffee, or tweet us a screenshot of your review of the show. If you sign up as a monthly supporter of Enemies of the People over a coffee, you are not only automatically entered into our monthly book giveaways, but you will also get access to our live book club Zoom meetings, which happen every month. So please check us out on Ko-fi. Just go to ko-fi.com forward slash Maria W. Norris. The link is also in our episode description. I really need to give you all credit for being just the absolute best listeners. Because of you, Enemies of the People did not drop out of the UK Apple Politics podcast ranking at all during our hiatus. We didn't leave the charts at all and that is just unbelievable to me and I am beyond grateful. We are currently ranked at position 185 on the charts. And it may not sound like a lot but there are thousands of politics podcasts so this is a real achievement. But we can do better. Previously we peaked at number 25 in the charts and with your help I think we not only can achieve this but we can surpass it. We can do better than 25. So and here's where you come in. And here's where you come in. Please rate and review the show if you haven't yet and tell everyone you know to listen to Enemies of the People. If you are enjoying Enemies of the People, Please tell everyone you know. Rate, review us, download more episodes, subscribe and follow, listen to your favorite episodes again. Your support means so much to me and it is especially important now that we're back from hiatus as we want enemies of the people to make its way back to the top of the UK politics podcast rankings and we will get there with your help. I know we will. You can find us on Twitter at enemiespod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. 
Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People.